Hello, and welcome to the All Things ADHD podcast from Chad's National Resource Center on ADHD. Hi, I'm your host, Susan Booning, and I'm here today with Dr. Jill Harkavy Friedman. Jill, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm the Vice President of Research at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and we are essentially a grassroots organization with the mission of saving lives and bringing hope. And we do this through research, education, advocacy, and support for people affected by suicide. So uh, we have chapters in all 50 states so that we can help provide the support and also bring suicide prevention to the forefront so that we can save lives and bring hope. We're here today to talk about suicide prevention and people with ADHD. Is ADHD more common in people who are suicidal? That's an important question. I'm going to turn it around what we know, which is that we know that For people who have ADHD, the rate of suicidal ideation and attempts and even death by suicide is higher, but suicide is complex. So often there are other conditions and experiences that a person has. It's not that it's caused by ADHD. What are the conditions that often coexist with ADHD that increase suicide risk and rates? We're, we're learning about that. The most common condition with ADHD in suicidal ideation and behavior is depression, also anxiety, also um, any troubles with impulse control, because often suicidal behavior is in the moment. And so we, we really need to rely on those mental breaks to stop the behavior. Substance use is another problem. And then um, we don't know any more about that because it's often not noted, for instance, on death records to learn about that. I will say that suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, and suicide completion do have overlap, but they're really somewhat distinct groups as well. So lots of people can have suicidal ideation. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to act on it. Uh, Fewer, but still many people have made a suicide attempt, but 95% of people who've made an attempt do go on to engage in life. And the rate of suicide is, while there are almost 50,000 people who died by suicide in, in 2019, it's still a relatively infrequent event. What are the warning signs? We look for signs that somebody might be heading down the path or increasing risk for suicide. And warning signs may appear even a year or two in advance. That's the thing about warning signs. They don't just suddenly appear, but maybe over time, and that time could be a short time, or like I said, a year or two, we see things like what people talk about, how they behave, and the moods that they have. So they might talk about being a burden. They might talk about, you won't have to worry about me next year at this time. They might say that life isn't worth living or they're just in horrible emotional pain and feel there's no escape. So those are the kinds of things that people might say, but sometimes they're really subtle or they just say it in passing. And sometimes people say nothing because they're hiding it. So we can't just rely on what people say, but it is an indicator. Then when we talk about behavior, we look for changes and you know people are really forgiving. So you see someone who looks down and you say, oh, they just lost a job or, oh, you know, they haven't been feeling well. And we 
we forgive the things that we see instead of realizing that they may be a factor that is showing that the person is not feeling mentally well and that they may be actually thinking about suicide. So changes in sleep, changes in eating, change in substance use, changes in social experiences. So they may either withdraw from activities or they might withdraw from people. So you notice that they're pulling back. They might also be looking for ways to kill themselves or such as looking on the internet. The reason we work for awareness is that if you see that change of behavior, just take note of it and check in. And then in terms of mood, while most people who die by suicide may be having a depressed mood, about 60% actually have a clinical depression. You might see depression, you might see irritability, you might see hopelessness and um, feeling depleted or humiliated. So any of those kinds of moods, we, we can't just rely on seeing depression. And another one that's not uncommon is irritability, that discomfort in being with others and being in their own skin. And I do want to bring up the issue that a person can't kill themselves if they don't have access to lethal means. So an important part of suicide prevention is if you know somebody is worried about it, to try to, we can't do it 100%, but try to remove at lethal means that they may be thinking of using. So when we're talking about risk factors. We're talking about having a mental health condition, a physical health condition, having uh, ongoing pain, having had a, a brain trauma, a head trauma, Similar in a way that ADHD, uh, head trauma can cause both greater impulsiveness and more difficulty in inhibiting behaviors. And we kind of rely on that. So if somebody is suicidal, they don't act on it. In addition, head traumas can cause mood changes and such as depression. So family history of suicide or mental health conditions. There are both environmental factors like that, as well as genetic factors that contribute. So these are some of the risk factors. And you can come to our website, AFSP.org. So that's for American Foundation for Suicide Prevention.org. And we have lots of information about risk factors and warning signs and what to do if you're worried about someone. Are suicide rates higher for certain age groups than for others? The rates of suicide are different depending on age. And many people don't realize that the highest rates of suicide are among middle-aged and elderly people. I think we have so much pain when we hear about a, a youth suicide because kids are not supposed to die. Uh, but kids account for about 5,000 of the 47,000 suicides that happen. So it's not insignificant. But the higher rates are middle-aged and elderly people. How about ADHD medication? Can it help prevent suicide or does it cause suicidal thoughts? So the relationship between ADHD medication and suicide is, is really important and interesting. There are many studies that look at like medical record data and historical data. And what they have found is that stimulants are associated with a decreased rate of suicide that hasn't been shown with other ADHD medications. And a really interesting factor is one study found that the rate of suicidal ideation and behavior was higher in the period before starting stimulants. And we don't think about it that way. But often when we help somebody who's struggling, it's not just the medication, but it's a combination of medication 
and learning problem solving skills. Having ADHD is, can be really difficult. You know, your relationships can be affected, your work can be affected. It might be difficult to control yourself when you get upset. You might have fewer problem solving skills and it takes more to learn them. And you might have irritability. All those things are also associated with increased suicidal behavior. So anything that's going to help somebody feel better about themselves, function better in their lives, and be more successful is likely to play a role in a more engaged and healthy life. So if stimulants allow people to have those things in their lives, that in and of itself can increase a person's reasons for staying alive and living. So it's not clear that stimulants cause a reduction in suicide, but they are associated with it. But we know that anything that helps a person to function better, deal with any problems that come up, is going to help reduce the risk of suicide. What kinds of support groups are available? Support groups can play a major role for people, whether they're the person with ADHD or a person who's living with a person with ADHD. Now, we know that CHAD has a tremendous network that's very helpful to people with ADHD and parents who have kids. When it gets more particular to groups about mental health or groups about suicide loss, and now there are new groups about uh, for people with lived experience of suicide, for people who've made suicide attempts. We have a national list that we keep of groups that have been trained for suicide loss interventions. But support can make a big difference if the person utilizes it and feels that they belong. NAMI, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, has support groups. And then it really depends on your neighborhood and, and what you're looking for. ADHD in and of itself does not cause suicide, just like depression in and of itself does not cause suicide. You know, there are many factors that come together, just like other health conditions like diabetes or heart disease. So it's not just finding a group for ADHD, but if you're having other kinds of life difficulties, there may be a group that helps to address that as well. How does suicide impact a family? Losing someone to suicide can be devastating, but families have all different kinds of feelings and they might have those feelings all at once even, or one at a time. There's often shock in the beginning. Even if you're worried about your family member taking their life, it still could be a shock, just like anything else, you know, when you lose a family member. So there's often shock. There's often intense sadness. There can be a sense of relief if somebody has been struggling. Now, that relief doesn't mean that they wanted the person to die. It's just like taking a breath when all the other feelings come in as well. You know, we don't want people to feel you know, that there's something wrong with them if they feel a little bit of relief uh, if a person has been struggling and exhausted and exhausting. There can often be anger, but the most prominent feeling we see in suicide, and not that everybody feels it, is guilt. What I've come to learn, um, I'm a clinical psychologist and I have worked with people who've lost people to suicide. And what I've learned about that guilt is that it's more a wish that you could have done something than the reality that you actually could have done something. And so that self-forgiveness takes time. And these feelings come and go, even if you're 20 years out, you know, something could trigger those feelings in a way that you, you surprise yourself. That's just the nature of grief and loss and healing. But there is a process of healing that does happen. 
and people do find a way to engage in life. And we have a program called International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day, which is always the Saturday before Thanksgiving. And that's a day when we provide a program internationally, and we provide a program and it's a forum for people to get together and talk about their experiences and learn about the process of healing. If you keep a lookout on our website or on our social media, we'll be sharing that information along the way. Um, the other thing that we have is a really special program called Healing Conversations. So if you or someone you know has lost someone to suicide and it's near term, we've trained people who are a few years out from their loss to have a conversation with you and talk about the process, the loss. And when possible, we try to match the person to a loss similar. So it's a place where what happens with people who lose someone to suicide is people don't know what to do with that often. They don't realize that it's a health condition. It's not, um, it looks like somebody did it on purpose, but their brain wasn't working properly. <laughs> and so we want to help people gather around a person if they've lost someone to suicide rather than leave them out in the cold. So we want people to know it's important to connect, to ask, to do whatever you do when somebody has lost someone in any other way. Now, what should someone do if a friend says they want to kill themselves? My first reaction to that is if they tell you that's so helpful, because then you can say, thank you for letting me know. I want to help you. I'm here for you. And together, we'll get through this difficult time. And it's not going to go away in a minute. But tell me what's going on. Tell me what you're thinking. How about if we get you some treatment, some mental health treatment? We now have treatments that we didn't used to have. So the key is to not be judgmental, no, ju no judgment. Understand the person doesn't choose to be this way, that they're feeling terrible emotional pain, and they're also feeling like there's no way out. It's not necessary to try and convince someone to stay alive because that puts them in the position of having to convince you that it really makes sense for them to kill themselves, right? Just listen. Ask questions so that you can understand what's going on with them. So together, you can make a plan. People often say, oh, my goodness, you have to go to the emergency room right away. Well, no, let's have that conversation first. You don't have to suddenly become a therapist or an emergency doctor. Just find out what the person is feeling, what they're thinking. Do they have a plan? Do they have access to that plan? And as you have that conversation, you'll find discover if it's an emergency or not. You can also call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, which will soon, but not yet, be 988, and that's it. Or the crisis text lines, texting TALK to 741-741. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline will actually speak with friends and family members to help guide them about what to do if someone has talked to them about suicide. So you're not alone in that. If you're with an LGBT person, you might call, contact the Trevor Project or recommend that they do. So there, there are a lot of different emergency lines, but it's not necessarily an emergency. Just ask them, what, is, what are they feeling? And let them know you're there for them, that you care about them, you love them, and you'll be there through the process. And don't keep any secrets because you're going to need help with this as well, and you can't be there 24-7. So think about who else you could bring into that circle 
to have those conversations and make a plan. Now, suppose that someone has taken a person to the hospital and when they get there, they say they're not planning on killing themselves. So the hospital won't admit them. So what, what do you do then? It definitely happens that someone either on their own or is brought to the hospital. And then when they finally get seen, because often it's hours to be seen, they say they're not suicidal. Some of those people know that if they say that, they're not going to be admitted. But sometimes it's really true. So again, it's really important to have a conversation with that person. And that's one of the reasons not to rush to the hospital, you know, if you don't need to and it's not an emergency. More and more, you're going to see crisis intervention centers where people can go for 23 hours all the way up to five days to get that support to help de-escalate the suicidal situation. So check out if there's a crisis center in your area. You know, ultimately, it is up to the person, even if they're not thinking at their best and they don't have access to their usual coping. Like think about heart disease, right? With heart disease, there are things that we can do, right? We know diet and exercise, and especially if you have a genetic risk. And, you know, some people do that and some people don't. Some people can do that and some people need help doing that. No matter what, we're still going to have people dying of heart disease, as sad as that is. So we kind of have to think, how do we help the person for them to take up working to having a life worth living? And most people will. They need time. They need time from the crisis and they need time so that somebody like you can intervene. But if you're at the hospital and they send them home, continue to have conversations, build a support network, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and ask them for suggestions. See if there is a crisis center in your area and also help them get an appointment for therapy. Most important, let them know you're there for them, you're not judging them, you understand and um, that it's not gonna go away in a minute but it will. Everyone says, you can always talk with me day, night, whatever, but that puts the burden on the depressed person. That person's depression is currently lying to them, saying that the well-meaning person doesn't really mean it, that the depressed person is a burden, or their problems are too big, or no one really wants to hear it. So the person does not reach out to open invitations. So how can someone intervene with someone who is dealing with depression in a proactive way, rather than shifting the burden of reaching out to the person who is coping with the depression? This is such a great question because you're right. A person who's thinking of suicide or any, you know, any mental health condition or even a physical condition, asking them to reach out sounds great and we hope they will. We encourage them to. But we still need to reach out to them. We need to check in regularly. Not just ask them, come over with dinner one night. Um, bring something you know they might need. Give them a call. Um, check in. I know you've not been feeling well. And I know you. maybe even people in this situation think of taking their lives. Are you thinking of that? I'm really worried about you. I care about you. And I want you to get through this. I know you're not going to call me, although please know you can always call me. Here's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Here's the crisis text line. Here's, you know, whichever crisis 
one that's appropriate for that person. And again, we have a whole list that are on our website. Please keep this with you. Also, I'm going to come over every once in a while, and I don't want to bother you, but I, I, I want to make sure you make it through this. Trust your gut. Assume you're the only one who's going to reach out to them. But at the same time, you can reach out to people to build a network or what I call an entourage. If you know the person is in therapy, and if you happen to know their therapist or psychiatrist, or you can ask them for, can you contact, can you contact family? Give them a call. Now, they can't talk to you because of HIPAA compliance, so privacy. You can ask the person to let your doctor talk to you, and then they can. But whether they have permission or not, you can leave a message on their machine telling them what's going on. Because, you know, people can come into a therapy session looking just fine and then go home and take their lives because they only have to keep it together for 45 minutes. And also sometimes when people have made the decision, that feeling is almost a feeling of relief. And they, that's why sometimes people seem to look better right before. But if they haven't looked great for a while and they suddenly look better, check in with them. We have guides on our websites about how to have a conversation with someone you're worried about because you're not the only one who's worried about it. <laughs> and we have to learn these things. So uh, we have a, what we call real convo guides about how to have a conversation. So just keep checking in, offer to bring them to help. Finding a therapist is really hard these days. So offer to make some of those phone calls and help them get into treatment. Thank you. Is there anything you'd like to tell us that I didn't ask you about? All of us know somebody who may be struggling and we may be struggling ourselves. So it's important to realize that you're not alone and that there are other people there for you. And that maybe you're thinking, if you're thinking about suicide, is not what it usually is. So accept that and get help. Accept that if you're worried about someone and they don't seem to want your help, just be a little bit of a pest to them. Don't offer them suggestions that they would never do, but ask them, what have you tried? Uh, suicide prevention takes all of us, but we can all play a role in preventing suicide. We can't prevent every suicide, but we can do our best to try. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the All Things ADHD podcast from Chad's National Resource Center on ADHD.